So at home, I don't know about you guys, but we have a battle over the remote control, right? So in the good old days when I was single, no battle, right? It belonged to me. Got married, my wife and I, and now we have kids. And so it's either the Disney Channel or the Food Network or ESPN, right? So my wife is gracious. She sits down and watches ESPN with me time to time, right? And she'll watch. I watch a Lakers highlight. I'll rewind it and watch it again several times. Uh, and she'll sit there. But there's one show where she will get up and leave. Like, she can't handle this one show. It's a show on ESPN called Pardon the Interruption, right? <laughs> Michael Wilborn and Tony Kornheiser. The whole show for 30 minutes is them arguing, them debating, them getting into controversies related to sports, you know, just arguing about who's better, LeBron or Kobe or Wade. Uh, what about the NFL? What about Lane Kiffin and steroids and uh, Giambi? And just constantly arguing back and forth. And my wife cannot handle it because all day she hears our kids bickering. <laughs> the last thing she needs is to watch TV where it's bickering. She wants to watch like Little House on the Prairie or people baking cupcakes and not people arguing. Well, I tell her, honey, I'm watching this because I'm preparing for ministry, right? <laughs> right? This is not entertainment for me. This is so I can be more effective as a pastor because being in pastoral ministry is being in conflict, right? Being involved and embroiled in controversy. I was a young pastor once, and I had this wide-eyed view of the pastoral ministry. And I thought it would be like, uh, you know, it would be like Disneyland. And it would be this uh, great family of people, everybody agreeing, everybody holding hands, singing Kumbaya, and just, you know, enjoying this time together. And uh, I've discovered through my experience, and I'm learning through Scripture, that conflict, controversy, and division is part and parcel to Christian ministry. It is not a matter of if, but a matter of when. It cannot be avoided. Christ himself, from day one, was embroiled in conflict and controversy. Apostle Paul as well. And this is what we are witnessing. So we studied what he said last week. But we're going to look again briefly through verses 6 and 9, and look at verse 10 more closely, and observe what is happening. Okay, do you guys get that? We studied what he said, but we want to look at why he said these things. What is actually occurring, a deeper layer to this text, to consider what is occurring here in this passage. Paul is uh, telling us by his ministry of the word and by his example that a Christian leader, a Christian pastor, must not back down from controversy, especially when it's related to the gospel of Christ. It's related to the gospel of Christ. All Christian leaders must have um, a bit of both of these animals, a lion and a lamb. J.C. Ryle spoke of uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon in this way. He was a man of granite with the heart of a child. So a pastor, sometimes he must be gentle as a lamb. Other times, though, he must be ferocious as a lion. Um, 
in our passage again, we're going to look at Paul's modeling for us what we are to fight for, why we must stand and fight, and how we are to stand and fight. So what, why, and how. What are we to fight for? Paul is astonished here. He writes this lengthy letter. He jumps headfirst into this controversy. He refuses to back down. He makes a stand. He will not compromise. There is no hedging of words here. He's ready for a fight because he's standing for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So first reason what we want to what first thing we want to fight, fight for is we must stand for the truth of the gospel. When the gospel is at stake, we must not back down. Because in the gospel, as we learned last week, it's a fixed truth. It's not a degree truth. No deviation, no compromise is allowed or permissible because to deviate even a little bit is to alter the gospel. When you change the gospel, the result is not you know, good enough. You know, not good enough where uh, it'll save us. No, it becomes another gospel, which is no gospel at all. It is a fixed truth. The contents must be defended. And the definition of these key concepts must be kept pure. Theological concepts like grace, justification by faith alone, substitutionary atonement, what it means to believe and repent, the deity and humanity of Christ. These truths, these words, aren't just words when it relates to the gospel. They are, they are truths that are pregnant with significance for believers. And we must maintain the definition of these truths. And not only that, as we learned last week, we must not add to the gospel or take away. We must not remove aspects of the gospel, and we must not add to it. We often think that adding something, especially a good thing, cannot do any harm. So what harm is there when you add to the gospel at the tail end good works? You just add to it the law of Moses, the law that God gave, the law that God wrote with his own finger. What harm could that do? Luther wrote in his commentary in Galatians, it seems such a little thing to mix the law and the gospel, faith and works, but this does more mischief than human reason can conceive. For it not only blemishes and obscures the knowledge of grace, but it also takes away Christ with all his benefits and utterly overshadows the gospel. That's what Jason was saying. You are flushing Christ flushing the gospel down the toilet when you add even a little bit of works at the tail end of the gospel. The cause of this great evil is our flesh, which being immersed in sins, sees no way of getting out except by works, and therefore we want to live in the righteous law and rely on ourselves. Because they mix the law with the gospel, they are perverters of the gospel. For either... Christ must remain and the law perish, or the law must remain and Christ must perish. Christ and the law are incompatible. 
cannot reign together in the conscience. Where the righteousness of the law rules, there the righteousness of grace cannot rule. And where the righteousness of grace reigns, the righteousness of the law cannot reign. One of them must give way to the other. The doctrine of grace cannot coexist with the doctrine of the law. One must simply be refused and abolished and the other confirmed and established. That's why Paul, this issue of circumcision, this issue of observing special days, Paul made a, a firm stand, engaged himself in this conflict because for him it meant true gospel or no gospel. It meant either he was saved or he's damned to hell. It means that everyone who follows Christ according to the gospel is banished to hell if they follow the gospel of the Judaizers. We must be embroiled in conflict for the gospel when it's related to the contents of the gospel, the definition of gospel concepts, and then the order of the gospel. The order of the gospel. The word again, distort here, is to reverse the gospel. Right, reverse the gospel. And I think this is where we, we trip ourselves up. Theologically, we have our order fixed, order biblical. But practically, day-to-day life, right, we, can, we can see what we truly believe practically by how we uh, respond to our, our, our fears and anxieties, how we respond to trials and disappointments in life. That gives us a greater wind, a, a, a larger window to really to see what we really believe. Right? We profess one thing, but practically, what do we really believe? Do you believe that God loved you before the foundation of the earth? God knew your name, and God saw all your sins, just as if He you committed it at that moment. But because God was moved by His own love for you irrespective of any righteousness, for you are bankrupt of any righteousness, because of His unilateral love for you, He chose you and sent His Son to die on the cross for your sins, and then you were born, lived your life in rebellion, at that chosen sovereign moment, God regenerated your heart, He saved you, gave you faith, opened your eyes and saved you, And as a gift of grace, He gave you sanctification. He gave you your your marriage, your children, your church, your job, your possessions, your hope for your whole life as a gift of grace. Do you believe that? Or do you believe? God knew I would believe. There is some righteousness in the, in, the, in the core of my being, there's a vestige, an island of righteousness. And he saw that. He foreknew it. He saw it beforehand. And all the blessings of my life is because I worked hard, I studied, I wasn't lazy, I didn't give myself to temptation, I denied myself, I chose a good friends or a good spouse or a good church or a good job and the blessedness of my life, the peace of my life is a result of my efforts or my cooperation with God. See, you, you reverse that order and uh, uh, 
everything falls apart. Everything. The heart, the essence of the gospel is the order of the gospel. I'm not speaking hyperbolically here, right? So positionally, if you get the gospel out of order, you're not saved. You are not a Christian. If you believe you are saved by works and faith, you're, you're, not, you're not a believer. As a Christian, you get the gospel out of order. right? You believe for your faith, for your salvation, right order. But practically, it's out of order. You're living your life as a practical atheist. You really are. I mean, come on. Like, just take a look at your life. Like, listen to your internal monologue. Consider... Why you can't sleep at night? Like, listen to your own words. Like, record your conversations. I mean, record your hopes and dreams and aspirations. Consider what makes you happy and what makes you sad. What irks you? What gives you joy? All those are indicators, whether in your Christian life, you have the gospel order right, or your gospel order is twisted, it's perverted, it's backwards and um, this is the the danger of conservative Bible churches this is um, how our atheism is most prevalent I mean who comes to like Cornerstone Bible Church right who comes to churches like this people who are prone they believe in their salvation based on justification but they're, they're prone to base their justification on their sanctification. They are filled with their own righteousness. They rely on themselves. We trust in our own knowledge and our works. This is a danger of Bible-believing conservative churches, and this is the most the, the prevalent, pervasive threat in our church. It's not Roman Catholicism, it's not Mormonism, it's not Jehovah's Witness theology. It's this, we profess the right things, we are Christians, but practically we live as spiritual atheists because for our sanctification, we have it backwards. So in Bible-believing churches, you have all these people who live their lives through their willpower. They have changed. They have their lives are marked by what they will themselves to do. Therefore, they don't cuss anymore, right? People cut us off and we don't cuss, right? We don't go clubbing. We don't get drunk. We don't care about the, the marijuana laws because it doesn't apply to us. We're not going to do, we're not going to smoke pot, right? We're not going to do all these other things. But at the same time, what what happens? What is existent on believers whose hearts are not relying on Christ, they're relying on themselves? There is a, a tremendous amount of insecurity in their hearts. A defensive criticism of others. A, a, a Pharisaic legalism that is rampant in their hearts and in their relationships a condescending view of others, a condemning attitude of others, condemning anyone if they don't have absolutely perfect theology. They're always categorizing people 
and judging others, and they're always suspicious. And they don't pass the, pass the bar or pass the standard if they're not perfect in their theology. And so these are professing believers. You know, we, you know, we love our children, okay? So don't get me wrong. I huff and puff my kids, you know. I make a lot of their, but we love our kids. But at the same time, they're sinners, right? Sinners are hard to love. And uh, the child that we love the most is Ethan, <laughs> right? Because God uses him to grow us more than any other child. And one thing about Ethan is uh, he fusses so easily, right? He'll get all fussy and emotional and angry. And he'll throw tantrums over anything and everything. Um, Some believers are like that. Some Christians are that way. They huff and puff about secondary doctrinal issues like the mode of baptism. I know a pastor who was uh, removed from his pastorate over an interpretation of a single word. 1 Corinthians 9.27, Hadakimas. He believed that he were disqualified from salvation. And the church believed, no, that is disqualified from a pr- being the prize, the reward of Christian life. And he was removed from his pastorate over interpretation of a single word. I remember back in seminary, all these students were huffing and puffing because one of our professors, Pastor Montoya, his church was congregational rule. Right? So for them, they voted on how to, the direction of the church. And all these students thought Montoya was compromising on the scriptures because his church wasn't led by elders. So there are two ways. Some Christians, they avoid controversy like the plague, right? They won't even stand. They won't stand for anything. Some Christians, you know, they're like, okay, we'll edit this out later. They're IFCA Christians, right? I fight Christians anywhere, Christians, right? Anywhere there's a fight, they want to be involved in. They want to get, they want to, they want a piece of, piece of the action. Richard Lovelace, um, in his book, Dynamics of the Spiritual Life, describes this um, syndrome in, in conservative churches. And he said, he said this, in their day-to-day existence, these believers rely on their sanctification for their justification drawing their assurance of their acceptance by God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their heroic recent religious performances, or their relative infrequency of their conscious willful disobedience, these Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously, radically insecure people, much less secure than non-Christians because they know too much about the holiness of God and their present sinfulness and the righteousness they are supposed to have. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce, defensive assertion of their own righteousness and rightness and defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security 
and discharge their suppressed anger. They cling desperately to legal, pharisaical righteousness, but envy, jealousy, and other branches on the tree of sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. This is our threat. Our threat is not so much that we will add or take away from the gospel. Our threat is not so much we'll redefine the terms of the gospel. Our threat is that in our sanctification, practically, we live our lives with the gospel reversed. And this is the fruit of people who have the gospel reversed. Driven by their insecurity because they know God's holy and they're sinful. And they're trying to obey and yet they fall short, even of their own standard. They lash out against others. Family members, children, friends. And it's all rooted in this insecurity because you can't have security based on yourself. The Christian security is found in the right order of the gospel. Paul knew this, so he did not back down. When faced with these perverters of the truth who are undermining the gospel of Christ, he stood his ground. So he stood for the gospel, for the truth of the gospel. Secondly, he stood for the authority of the gospel. Uh, I, I love this. Uh, we studied briefly last week where Paul said, uh, even if we are an angel from heaven, should preach the gospel to you, another gospel, let him be eternally condemned. Let him be anathema. And then in verse 9, he repeats it. Now why? He said, as I have said, let me say again. And he repeats it. Why does he repeat it? Because... I, mean, I think it's because he wants the readers to know that he's not just, you know, it's not an outburst of emotion. He's not talking out of just a pent-up emotion. He, he, he's thought this through. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is truth. So for emphasis' sake and for clarity's sake, and just in case they think, oh, Paul is just upset, he, that astonishment got the better of him. No, let me say it again. The authority is not in apostles, even of Jesus Christ, even the very men. They are fallible men, right? And we know they're fallible. Just look at Peter, right? Peter is Mr. Fallibility. Wherever he went, right, he put his foot in his mouth, right? Men are fallible. And even angels, Satan, 2 Corinthians 11, comes as an angel of light. The authority is not in people or the church or is not even from an angel. It's in the gospel of Christ. And so if anyone comes to you and preaches a heteros gospel, a cubic zirconia gospel, let him be eternally condemned. So therefore, right, an angel comes to you, right? And you, it's an angel, right? You've seen those movies and you can verify this is an angel of God. The angel is flying for goodness sakes. Right? The angel has wings, got a halo. Right? How do you verify if this angel is from God or not? Do you ask him about the inerrancy of scripture? Well, Satan believes that, right? Do you ask him about the law of Moses? Right? Other religions have the law of Moses. Catholicism, Jehovah's Witnesses. Do you ask him about uh, the deity of Christ? They have that as well, right? What you ask him is, what do you believe? Do you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is is your definition of the gospel? And 
what is your order? Do you believe that we are justified by faith, through, by grace through faith alone? Or do you believe that in some, we have some remnant of righteousness and we cooperate with God for our salvation or our sanctification? If an angel of God says, oh, we cooperate with God, that God loves you because he knew you would love him. God chose you. God loved you because you had some righteousness in you, some goodness, some faith in you. If an angel of God, an angel says this, then you take out your you know, most effective weapon that you have in your household and you, you know, end this angel's life, right? Or you cast him out or you curse this angel because this angel is not of God. What determines authority? It's not an experience. It's not emotion. It's not people. It's not even an angelic visitation. Paul says the authority is the gospel of Christ. Now, third is why. You know, why, why must we stand for the gospel? All right. you know, what, what must we do? We must stand for the gospel. Why must we stand for the gospel? Because of the devastating consequence of the alternative. What is the alternative of this gospel? It is no gospel. What is the result of that? Um, Paul said in verse um, 7, there are some who trouble you. And I, I did a word study, and there's so many, right? I mean, it, it is a laborious thing to do word studies. And so... I didn't get to trouble last week. I got to trouble this week, and I, I, I realized trouble is too light a word, too light of an English, English equivalent of the Greek word here. Uh, NIV says, throwing you into confusion. I mean, the, tr- the idea of trouble is like, you know, a, a cricket that's troubling you. You can't go to sleep, right? Trouble is like right, someone like passing interference and you can't catch the ball. That's trouble, right? <laughs> From last week. The word here is destroy, right? Destroy. These men are destroying the church. They're ripping the heart out of the gospel. When you distort, when you get the order wrong, you're not, they're not just hurting an appendage, right? They're going after the heart of the church. They're knocking down the house, right? They're destroying Christians, this is, uh, I mean, this is uh, an incredible thing that they're t- attempting to do. Right? I mean, you know, Ronnie Lott, NFL cornerback, he, he broke his uh, pinky one Sunday, and to play next week, he amputated that pinky so that he can play football. And people make a big deal. I guess it is a big deal. <laughs> but I mean... It's a pinky. I don't think that guy plays piano or plays guitar or anything. I don't know if that's really important for him. Right? I think for some of us, we would do that, right? Maybe, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe football to get paid, right? But not for your heart. Because if you amputate your heart, <laughs> then you're dead. See, that's, that's the church. Right? Paul says... You know, they were confused of Paul because Paul circumcised Timothy, right? Paul would eat food that was offered to idols, right? Paul would, when he was with Gentiles, act like Gentiles. 
When he was with Jews, he would act like Jews. He was such a flexible, free, open guy. Right? He went with the crowd. He didn't have, these, he didn't have convictions about all these things. Uh, he wasn't you know, bogged down with all these convictions. And, and we'll learn later, 1 Corinthians 9, the motivation behind that. So they thought Paul was a weak pushover. Well, it's because for Paul, it was a pinky. Right? You want me to cut my pinky off so that I can share the gospel with you? Right? So you want me to drink alcohol? Right? So that I can sit with you and share the gospel? You want me to smoke marble reds with you so that I can share the gospel with you? Right? You want me to shave my head like Hudson Taylor did? So that I might be, you might be more open to the gospel through me? For Paul, it was less than, it was like a fingernail to Paul. But when the gospel was at stake, for Paul, it was the heart of the gospel. It was his eternity. It was the heart of the church. They're destroying the church if you get the gospel wrong. So here he became a lion and he would not budge. And that's how I think, we'll talk about it more later, but it's an example for believers. We need to understand what is a fingernail, right? What is a pinky and what is the heart, right? And you get that wrong, right? You're doing a great deal of harm. You do that right, then you're preserving the truth and preserving the church. Well, what, what, was, what did he stand for? The gospel. Why? Because of the consequences. Thirdly, how, how did it involve Paul? How are we to defend ourselves? And, and this is where it gets a little, little thorny because inevitably, I always have a hard time saying that word, inevitably, the gospel preacher will come under attack. That's the example of Christ. They couldn't, they couldn't find anything wrong with his theology or his ministry, so they attacked him. Powers of Baal attacked him. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Apostle Paul, they couldn't find anything wrong with his theology, and so they attacked him. And uh, what was their attack? Right. They attacked him that he was... Uh, people pleaser right he was uh, a seeker sensitive right original seeker sensitive guy with cheap grace he was compromising on the law and so because he uh, loved the praise of men right he loved the praise of men that he wanted their attention and wanted the claim of being a successful uh, missionary because he was so insecure as not being the, part of the original 12 that he catered and compromised the gospel to make it more palatable to Gentiles out of his own insecure desire. That's what Paul was doing. He was compromising the gospel out of fear of man. That's one thing. I mean, we should always be questioning our motives, right? uh, But to have your enemies and have the church question Paul's motive must have been very difficult for him. So Paul, you know, he, st- he stated this in 2 second, second Corinthians. Ministers of the gospel ought, ought not defend themselves. We are not worth defending, right? In a position of spiritual leadership, someone accuses you of something, you say, yeah, right? I am an impatient person, forgive me. Right? Yeah, you know, I wrestle with pride. For, pray for me, brother, because I'm such a prideful man. Uh, you're, you're so given to uh, rashness and, 
and extreme, extreme decisions. Yeah, that is, I'm like a young man, you know, bobbing and weaving constantly, going to and fro, pray for me. We are not worth defending because we are clay pots, right? We're, we're throwaway Tupperware. But Paul here, and also St. Corinthians, defended himself for two reasons. And gospel ministers are compelled to defend themselves for these two reasons. When the gospel is at stake, and when Christians are at stake. So you're not defending yourself because you're hurt, you're offended because of your pride, or because of my pride. We, are, we must defend ourselves if, the, if they're seeking to undermine the gospel. That's their true intent. They're attacking you because you want to attack the gospel. Right? And they're attacking you because they want to uh, divide your relationship with fellow Christians or those that are under you. If that is their agenda, then as a minister of the gospel, you must defend themselves. In verse 10, Paul defends himself. Paul shows uh, how Christian leaders are to defend themselves. Um, You know, gosh. I mean, Paul, you look at the whole overview of the book of Galatians. And Paul spends um, chapters 5 and 6 defending the implications of the gospel. He spends chapters 3 and 4 in defending the theology of the gospel from the Old Testament. He spends the rest of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 on his apostolic authority because they were attacking his legitimacy as an apostle of Christ. In verse 10, in one verse, he defends his motivation. He's defending himself. Here is motivation. Verse 10. Where am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So I, I know Paul doesn't enjoy doing this. Right? But he puts a spotlight on himself. His heart is to put a spotlight on Christ. But they forced him to do this. So he says, okay, let's, let's look at me right now. Right? Let's consider and how we are to defend ourselves. How Christian leaders is not to assert authority. It's not by threatening people. Right? It's not by way of physical force. That's, that's not good. Right? The way we're to defend ourselves is by calling to forth our conduct, our example, right? our lives. Paul is telling them, look at me. He defends himself by saying, you're saying I'm a people pleaser. The first word for is the Greek word gar, and it could be translated since, because, and. Another way, another word that it could be used is there. And uh, I think that's the word that's most appropriate here. In light of verse 8 and 9, there, right? Now, do you think I am seeking the approval of man or of God? What did I just do? I pronounced eternal condemnation to myself, to any other apostles, even an angel of God. I pronounced eternal damnation. Someone who was seeking to please people, would he? Do such a thing? 
Am I still trying? Am I really a people pleaser? Do I fear man? On these secondary issues, I'm open because they're not essential. On the essential doctrine of the gospel, here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. I am pronouncing eternal judgment on anyone who pronounces or preaches a false gospel. Is this what a people pleaser, someone who is ensnared and enslaved by fear of man, is that what that kind of person would do? Paul is pointing to himself. Paul is calling for, am I still trying to please man? And then he says in verse 10, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And Later on in Galatians, he, um, he points out how he, in his own body, he bears the marks of Christ in his body. He had been with them in ministry. He saw how he had been persecuted by his own countrymen, by fellow Jews who were zealous for the gospel. So they had beat him, they had stoned him, they had flogged him, and they saw for themselves the suffering that he endured. So look at me, look at my body, look at my life, right? Consider what I just said, and consider me, am I a servant of man? Or am I a servant, a slave of Christ? Paul later argued that what they're accusing me of is is the very exact motivation that is uh, compelling these Judaizers to do what they're doing. In Galatians 6, 12 and 13, Paul said, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised in order that, only in order that, they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So Paul, he was persecuted everywhere he went. Jewish people, Jewish leaders followed him. They persecuted him everywhere he went. At the end of his life, he was ready to give himself to die, die. And so he went to Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, so that he might finally ultimate persecution for the gospel there. He says these Judaizers, their motivation is they don't want to be persecuted by their family and their friends, their community. And that's the motivation for them adding to the gospel. For Paul... He found in the gospel the way out. Gospel is a source where uh, he is not enslaved to the fear of man. He doesn't live life to seek the praise of people, but the praise of God. In the gospel, he found for himself the strength, the power, and the truth. Do not fear for himself at all, but live for the praise of the Father. Three closing thoughts for our study. Um, How the gospel, I believe, freed Paul, and how the gospel can free you from the fear of man. How the gospel can help you from 
practical atheism of reversing the order of the gospel for your sanctification, how the gospel can help you discern between a fingernail, a pinky, and the heart. First of all, the gospel changes your identity. The gospel changes your, radically changes it. Without the gospel, you, you have these uh, polar opposite truths. A religious person considers himself a slave to God. Right? So I'm God's slave, and what he does, I follow. It's my duty, it's my obligation, and my, uh, my, my, my standard, my, my quality of my service is based upon how well I execute the, the demands of my master. The irreligious is the opposite. I am free. I am not a slave. Right? I am free from all men. I don't care what anyone thinks. I don't fear God. I don't fear people. They're, they, they have such a low view of others. They consider everybody trash. So they have no concern of other people's opinions toward them. That's the polar opposite um, realities without the gospel. With the gospel, it's this paradoxical view, this identity that upholds both. And Luther articulated this in his letter, The Freedom of a Christian. He said, The Christian is a free Lord of all, subject to none. And at the same time, the Christian is a dutiful slave to all, subject to everyone. Right? One more time. Christian is a free Lord of all, subject to none. Christian is a dutiful slave to all, subject to everyone. Let me read to you a portion of his, of his uh, essay. Because of Christ, no one can tell us what to do or where to go. Because our highest allegiance is to God, we do not have to be subject to what people tell us to do. We make our own decisions, our own plans, without referring to other people or concerning ourselves with their needs. We are in charge of our own choices, and we have personal autonomy. But in another sense, we are perfect servants of all because our high, highest allegiance is to God, we have an obligation to respond to God's call to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, welcome the stranger, show compassion to the prisoner. So while no one can demand that we act out our faith, God's call to us still stands. If we wish to be faithful to God's call, we must be slaves of everyone. In other words, if we are really free, we will be slaves to the right master. Although the Christian is thus free from all works, he ought to in this liberty to empty himself, to serve and help, and, and, and in every way deal with his neighbor as he sees that God through Christ has dealt with him and still deals with him that he should do freely having regard for nothing but divine approval. This is what the gospel grants to us. This dual citizenship, this paradoxical identity that we are free. So you are free right now 
to spend time however as you like. The money that you have, you can do with it whatever you want. Right? The possessions that you own, God has given it to you. Right? Your life is yours. You are free. You're obligated to no one. At the same time, you are free in Christ. Under the law of Christ. You are in Him. Under the law of love. And because of God's love to you, God's love compels you through His love to invest your time in people. To invest your efforts, your energy, your strength in serving and loving others. Strangers, fellow believers. The gospel compels you. The money that you have teaches you It doesn't belong to you. You are free, but at the same time, you're free in Christ. Therefore, it belongs to God and compels you to be generous for the gospel ministry. The gospel, the love of God through the gospel compels you to live your life for the service of others, for the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. Please listen to this. Brothers and sisters, Listen to what Paul says here. The love of Christ compels us. It's not the law of Moses compels us. It's the love, the absolute, free, unconditional, eternal love for you compels us. Because one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him, Jesus Christ, who for their sake died and was raised. See, without the gospel, you're either religious and you're a slave. Right? It's drudgery. Right? You're here because you have to be here. Right? And if you're irreligious, then you are free. You're not here. Right? Maybe they'll listen to my sermons online. Right? Your time belongs to you. You're wasting your life. The gospel, it's both. You're free. Slave to no one. But because of Christ's love, God transforms your heart. You live for Christ. Secondly, through the gospel, it changes who you fear. Changes uh, who you seek to please in your life. Let me just quote Ed Welch. He said, all experiences of the fear of man share at least one common feature. People are big. So it's, Maybe it's your parents, right? Their love for you or their neglect, their hatred towards you. You're reacting against that. It could be your spouse. It could be your children, your boyfriend or girlfriend. It could be your boss. It could be your customer, right? This person has become big, so big in your heart that it's idolatrous. They control you. And since He continues, there is no room in our hearts to worship both God and people. Whenever people are big, God is not. Therefore, the first task in escaping the snare of the fear of man is to know that God is awesome and glorious and people are not. And uh, where is God the most glorious? Where is God? Where do you see the, 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 the greatest glory, beauty, the majesty of God? Is it in his creation? Is it in the stars? Is it in Moses parting the sea? 
Is it the miracles in the Old Testament of raising the dead? Or is it the cross of Christ? When we understand, when we behold our Savior crucified for us, as Piper said, it is the blazing center of the glory of God. There is no greater glory of God than when we see God's justice and righteousness and holiness. At the same time, we see His compassion, love, and mercy kissed together on the cross on our behalf. And when we understand the gospel, then it drives away fear of man. It drives away these petty desires to live for people. It sets us free because God is not far away. Through the cross, the glory of God, we behold His face. His face shines upon us. Right? We live our lives in light of His glorious face. And then thirdly, right, the gospel relativizes life and ministry. The gospel relativizes life and ministry. I'm just going to wrap it up here. 1 Corinthians 9, 9 through 23, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. And then I'm going to jump forward to 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. I do not seek my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And then 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Follow me as I follow Christ. See, we take that verse out of context. What is he saying? He's saying this is what Jesus did. Jesus ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners. Right? Jesus broke the Sabbath, the tradition of the religious leaders of Israel. Right? John 9, Jesus healed a man born blind. He never saw his whole life a great miracle. It's never been done in the history of the world. A man born without eyes, given sight. And yet the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they were filled, filled with anger. Filled with wrath. Why? Because Jesus did it on the Sabbath. He did it on the wrong day. Why don't you wait a day? Jesus, 11 more hours. Right? Then we'd be happy. Why don't you do it on a Saturday? And Jesus confirm the hardness of their hearts. Their Pharisaic, their legalism, holding to their own regulations, rituals, traditions, not in the Word of God. And therefore, they rejected Christ. This is the example of Christ. And this is what the example that Paul followed. That all these human regulations, apart from the Word of God, it was freedom. Right? And so for the, the flashpoint in first century Christianity was Food and drinking. And he said, I'm following Christ. So church, 
follow me. So through the gospel, it relativizes everything. What we see as essential, what we see as biblical, and then what we see as human tradition, as non-essentials, as secondary. So in light of that, we can give ourselves to being all things to all people for the gospel. That men might hear the gospel, receive it, and be saved. Let us uh, not just understand what Paul is saying, what Paul has done here. He's putting the gospel center of the Galatian churches. And I believe that's what the Holy Spirit desires to do in our church. Put the gospel the center of our church. Put the gospel the center of our hearts. Now, why? Why do we want to do that? Because God wants to save his elect. Right? God wants to save his people through his message. And as we put the gospel to the center, we are allowing the Spirit to work. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the gospel of your son. We thank you for Jesus. And we uh, acknowledge the insecurity that's in all our hearts. We just, that's a slippery slope. That's the natural slide of all of us. Our hearts are idol-making machines and we make idols of ourselves. And we boast in our flesh and we seek to be, to justify ourselves, to stand before you based upon our works. And yet though it works for a little little while, this idol turns on us and leads us to despair. Who can be righteous before, before you? Who can claim to be perfect before you? Lord, we, we fall short and we compensate out of our insecurity, by lashing out against you and against fellow Christians, against this world, trying to promote ourselves by pointing out the flaws and weaknesses and sins of others. All the while, the gospel is obscured and it's not rooted in our hearts and it does not go forth to save your people whom you have chosen. Lord, we confess of our deep-seated faithlessness but, we, but there is great joy in our hearts because of the hope and the promise of the gospel that our work is to trust and to rely upon you and hope in you that you as our victor, as our warrior will go before us. And Lord, rescue us from ourselves. So we ask you, God, to come near through your Son, shine your face upon us and liberate us from, from, our, from sin and the uh, to snare a fear of man, uh, to be uh, true ambassadors of, of the gospel to this world, that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.